Welcome back to Will Wright Catholic. I'm your host, Will Wright. Today we're going to be talking about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It's Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and uh, with that approaching, it struck me that I, I think a great number of Americans have no idea who this man was or what he did. They're, they're barely familiar with his most famous speech, right? the I Have a Dream speech, uh, and I'm certain we've at least heard part of it. And each third Monday of January, most of us take the day off work for the federal holiday, but I don't think we take time to appreciate the contributions of this great man. So in a small way, I would like to respond uh, today to that vacancy of attention. This short episode is going to look at the life of Dr. King and his role in the civil rights movement. I'm going to give some of the main uh, sort of highlights of what happened during the civil rights movement. And there's a lot of things that I have to leave out for time's sake, but I'm hoping that this can serve as a primer for further study. See, I believe that we still have a lot more to learn from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Just a note before we dive in, I'm very excited to say that we've reached 200 subscribers on Substack. Uh, So that's email subscribers that you all are getting these episodes directly to your inbox every single time they come out. If you're listening and you haven't yet subscribed, please do that. Go to willwritecatholic.substack.com to sign up and never miss an episode or an article. Um, So really exciting, 200. So thank you so much for listening. As always, if you have any comments or ideas or topics that you want covered, uh, just shoot me an email. It's willwritecatholic at gmail.com. And as always, if you enjoy this episode, please uh, like it, rate it, review it, uh, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts or uh, Spotify. Really appreciate that. And feel free to share it with your friends and family on social media and uh, through email or text or word of mouth. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy today's episode on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was born Michael King Jr. on January 15, 1929 in Atlanta, Georgia. He was an American Baptist minister. He was one of the foremost leaders of the civil rights movement of the late 1950s and the 1960s here in the United States of America. As an African-American, Dr. King fought for the rights of people of color in particular through nonviolence and civil disobedience. In this regard, he had been inspired both by our Lord Jesus Christ and also the example of Mahatma Gandhi earlier uh, in the same century. As a Baptist minister, King was steeped in the written word of God. He was a man of the word. As a young man, he earned a Bachelor of Divinity degree in 1951 from Crozer uh, Theological Seminary in Upland, Pennsylvania. Uh, He then went on to pursue doctoral studies in systematic theology at Boston University. Um, So some real heavy-hitting stuff in theology. He received his Ph.D. degree on June 5, 1955. And uh, his dissertation was entitled, A Comparison of the Conceptions of God in the Thinking of Paul Tillich and Henry Nelson uh, Wieman. Uh, Paul Tillich, of course, being one of the most famous uh, Protestant Lutheran um, theologians of the 20th century. Before completing his studies, uh, he married Coretta Scott on June 18, 1953, and they became the parents of four children. 
King was made pastor of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama at the age of 25 in 1954. So he was wasting no time. He had uh, just about finished his PhD and uh, he was made pastor in Montgomery, Alabama. In December 1959, he moved back to his home city of Atlanta, and he served as co-pastor of the Ebenezer Baptist Church alongside his father, uh, Martin Luther King Sr., until his death. Uh, Sadly, Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and killed while staying at a motel in Memphis, Tennessee on April 4th, 1968. The Civil Rights Movement... Uh, I feel like we we should really kind of go through this, like the timeline, what happened, and kind of see how Martin Luther King Jr. fits in. Because uh, I think a lot of people sort of just say, okay, the, yeah, the civil rights movement, it happened in the late 50s and in the 1960s, but uh, there's not a lot of attention to detail and kind of what actually happened. Maybe we know something about Rosa Parks or um, little bits and pieces. So hopefully this will be helpful. And I really think that the civil rights movement sort of began in large measure with the Supreme Court case Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. And basically, this ruled that racial segregation in public schools was unconstitutional. And so this overturned the horrendous Plessy v. Ferguson case uh, in 1896, which allowed Jim Crow laws that mandated separate, and as they would say, but equal, of course, it's never equal, separate but equal public facilities for whites and blacks. And beginning with schools, desegregation quickly spread to other public facilities as well. And this, of course, caught the attention of Dr. King. And on December 1st, 1955, so a year after this case, African-American Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a public bus to a white passenger because, of course, the black section was in the back, the white section was in the front. She sat down at the front. Now, a lot of people think that she was just tired. It was after work. She just sat down, but but this had been planned. Right? She was arrested, and there was a sustained bus boycott, which she began in Montgomery, Alabama. And the protest began on December 5th with the young local preacher, Martin Luther King Jr., leading the way. So this was all planned ahead of time by Rosa Parks and Dr. King together. And the boycott continued for more than a year. And the Supreme Court eventually ruled on a lower court's ruling that segregated seating was unconstitutional based on Brown versus Board of Education. So it wasn't just public schools that were desegregated. Now there wasn't to be segregated seating on buses and things like this. So a nice step forward. In 1957, the uh, Little Rock Nine, as they were called, attempted to you know, do the, the terrible thing of go to high school. Uh, right. The, the central high school in Little Rock was entirely white population, and there were nine young black men who eventually had to be escorted in to school to attend school by U.S. soldiers. Right? The Arkansas National Guard were called in. Uh, they were trying to keep order. It seemed like they were blocking these young men from actually attending school. So the U.S. Uh, military had to be called in. Uh, eight out of nine of those men finished out their studies by the end of the year. In uh, North Carolina, the Greensboro Four in 1960 took part in a sit-in at an all-white lunch counter at the F.W. Woolworth department store. Right, they would they went in, they they ordered lunch, 
Uh, and of course, as white people showed up, they were told to move. They didn't. Uh, they were taken off to jail and the sit-in grew, right? Replacements were brought in to replace all of those taken off to jail. Uh, and eventually, Woolworth started serving all people of all colors um, not too long afterwards. On November 14th, 1960, a six-year-old girl named Ruby Bridges was escorted to her first day at the previously all-white William France Elementary School in New Orleans. And she had to be escorted for her safety by four armed federal marshals. Right, six-year-old girl. Many of the parents marched in to remove their children from the school to protest this desegregation because, of course, how dare this young black girl go, go to school right, to learn? Um, she continued going to school, being escorted by the marshals, endured threats along the way, people yelling at her, spitting at her. And uh, her teacher, Barbara Henry, continued to teach her right, alone in the classroom. It was just her and Ruby Bridges by the end of it. Uh, so desegregation of the public schools was not going particularly well in all places in the country. Now, beginning on May 4th, 1961, a group of seven African-American and six whites boarded two buses bound for New Orleans. Along the way, the riders tested the Supreme Court ruling of Boynton v. Virginia, which extended an earlier ruling banning segregated interstate bus travel to include bus terminals and restrooms. So they went on these freedom rides to determine um, sort of whether this was actually taking place. In South Carolina, the bus had a tire slashed. It was firebombed. The freedom riders were beaten. A, a second group of 10 replaced them until they were arrested or beaten, and then another group would take their place. And finally, on May 29th, U.S. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy ordered the Interstate Commerce Commission to enforce bans on segregation more strictly. Uh, this took effect in September of 1961. So with all of these different sit-ins and uh, the bus boycotts and the uh, Freedom Riders, they were getting things done and they weren't doing anything uh, violent. They were uh, technically not breaking the law either. It was just, uh, it was a lot of cultural changes that needed to happen, but it was getting done. Next uh, comes the, the Birmingham demonstrations. The SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and Martin Luther King Jr. launched a campaign in Birmingham, Alabama to undermine the city's system of racial segregation. So this campaign included uh, everything that had worked before, sit-ins, economic boycotts, mass protests, and even marches on City Hall. And the demonstrations faced challenges. Uh, there were indifferent African Americans, uh, something which we'll talk about later. Uh, that that Martin Luther King Jr. was particularly um, opposed to those who would be moderate or indifferent. Uh, they were also facing the challenges of adversarial white and black leaders, those that wanted order rather than change, and a hostile commissioner of public safety for the city, a man named Eugene Bull Connor. Dr. King was arrested on April 12th, uh, for violating an anti-protest injunction, uh, April 12th, 1963, uh, and he was placed in solitary, solitary confinement. The demonstrations continued for a month, and then the Children's Crusade was launched. And basically what this was, on, on May 2nd, 1963, school-aged volunteers skipped school and began to march, and the local jails were being 
quickly filled up. Bull Connor ordered the police and fire department to set high-pressure water hoses and attack dogs on these kids, on these youth. So the violent tactics which were being filmed, uh, these violent tactics on peaceful demonstrators caused outrage locally, and it actually gained national media attention. And it caught the sight of President John F. Kennedy, who proposed a civil rights bill on June 11th of 1963. The Birmingham campaign was eventually negotiated to an agreement locally, but tensions were still very high. And sadly, on uh, September 15th of that year, at the 16th Street Baptist Church, uh, four African-American girls were killed and others were injured uh, by a bomb. And the county, uh, the country rather, was in the midst of the war in Vietnam, a very, very unpopular war. And they're really sort of determining at home what sort of nation we might be. Then on August 28th, 1963, is the, the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And, and this took place to protest civil rights abuses and employment discrimination. And there was a crowd of 250,000 people peacefully gathered on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. to listen to speeches Uh, most notably by Martin Luther King Jr. This is where Dr. King delivered his I Have a Dream speech, uh, which I'll make a couple of comments on at the end of today's episode. On July 2nd, 1964, President Lyndon B. Johnson signs the Civil Rights Act of 1964 into law. This is a much stronger version of the legislation that President Kennedy proposed uh, before his untimely assassination in Dallas. And the act authorized the federal government to prevent racial discrimination in employment, voting, and the use of public facilities. Uh, So this was a pretty substantial piece of legislation, really moved the ball forward. On uh, February 21st of the next year, 1965, a man named Malcolm X was assassinated while lecturing at the Audubon Ballroom in Harlem, New York. He was a brilliant speaker, very charismatic. Uh, And he demanded that the civil rights movement, in his words, move beyond civil rights to human rights. And he thought that the solution to racial problems was in orthodox Islam. And so his ideas contributed to the development of what became known as the black nationalist ideology and the Black Panther movement. Uh, On March 7th, 1965... Uh, Dr. King organized a march from Selma, Alabama to Montgomery, Alabama, and he was doing this to call for a federal voting rights law that provided legal support for disenfranchised African-Americans in the South. State troopers sent marchers back with violence and tear gas. Television cameras recorded the incident. On March 9th, King tried again, even despite the violence and tear gas, with 2,000 marchers. So, I mean, they were committed to this. And they encountered a barricade of state troopers at Pettus Bridge in between these two cities of Selma and Montgomery. Now, King had his followers kneel in prayer, and then they unexpectedly turned back. President Johnson introduced voting rights legislation on March 15th. And then on March 21st, King once again set out from, from Selma. And this time... The Alabama National Guardsmen, federal marshals, and FBI agents assisted, and King arrived safely in Montgomery on March 25th. The Voting Rights Act was signed into law on August 6th, 
Uh, this law suspended literacy tests for voting, provided for federal approval of proposed changes to voting laws or procedures, and directed the Attorney General of the U.S. to challenge the use of poll taxes for state and local elections. So before this, right, you had to have uh, in some places, there were literacy tests. So if you weren't well-educated, you were barred from voting effectively. And then poll taxes. If you didn't have the money to pay the poll tax, then you couldn't take part in state and local elections. Uh, so the Voting Rights Act did away with those and really leveled the playing field so that anyone uh, who can vote uh, could vote. In 1965... Uh, things unfortunately get a little bit violent in L.A., a series of violent confrontations between the city police and residents of Watts and other black neighborhoods in L.A. began the Watts riots on August 11, 1965. A white police officer arrested an African-American man, Marquette Fry, on suspicion of driving while intoxicated. Now, it came out later that uh, Mr. Fry likely resisted arrest and the po police possibly used excessive force, so... A lot of the things that we're still dealing with in the news cycle, um, these were happening much, much more often in the 1960s. Violence, fires, looting broke out over the next six days. Uh, the result was 34 deaths, 1,000 injuries, and $40 million in property damage. The McCone Commission would later investigate the cause of the riots and concluded that they were the result of economic challenges, including poor housing, schools, and jobs prospects. Now, of course, uh, this was not something that, that Dr. King would have advocated for, as he was an advocate of nonviolence and uh, civil disobedience, yes, but, but nonviolence. After Malcolm X was assassinated, uh, a man named Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale, uh, these two men, founded the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California. And they did this to protect black neighborhoods from what they saw as police brutality. Uh, I should mention they did this in 1966. Right, the group launched community programs providing uh, tuberculosis testing, legal aid, transportation assistance, and uh, free shoes. And they believe that they they had to do all this because the civil rights reforms didn't do enough. The Black Panther Party was socialist in their doctrine, uh, and therefore they were the target of the FBI's counterintelligence program. They were accused of being a communist organization and therefore an enemy of the U.S. government. In December of 1969, police tried to annihilate the group at their Southern California headquarters and in Illinois. The party's operations continued less actively into the 1970s. Uh, and I should mention that when they're fighting, the reason that the police weren't able to completely take them out is because the Black Panthers were fighting back. Right? They had weapons, they were entrenched, and uh, they were not afraid to use violence. So a very, very different uh, approach to getting civil rights from Malcolm X versus Martin Luther King Jr., on June 12th, 1967, the U.S. Supreme Court declared the Virginia statutes prohibiting interracial marriage unconstitutional. It was a, a white man named Richard Loving and uh, a mixed black and Native American woman named Mildred Jeter who left Virginia in 1967, or 63 rather, um, to be married 
and then tried to return to the state. Now, this was against the law because in Virginia, you could not be married to someone who is not of the same race as you. And there was a one-year prison sentence that was associated with it. Now, their prison sentence was suspended on the condition that they leave Virginia and not return for at least 25 years. They filed their suit in 1963. It took four years to get it to the Supreme Court, and their conviction was reversed. Chief Justice Earl Warren wrote for a unanimous court, doesn't happen often, unanimous court decision that freedom to marry was a basic civil right. And so this ruling invalidated laws against interracial marriage in Virginia and 15 other states. Uh, riots strike once again in uh, July of 1967, a series of violent confrontations between African-American neighborhoods and police begin in Detroit on July 23rd, 1967, after a raid at an illegal drinking club. 82 uh, African-Americans and others were arrested. Nearby residents protested, began to vandalize property, loot businesses, start fires for five days. Police set up blockades, but the violence still spread. And the result of this was 43 deaths, hundreds of injuries, more than 7,000 arrests, and 1,000 burned buildings. President Johnson saw this, and he appointed the National Advisory Committee on Civil Disorders, and they concluded that racism, discrimination, and poverty were some of the causes of the violence. Uh, so even officially from, from the federal government, they realize the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is not enough. There's more to do. Now, we, we come to 1968, and here's where we'll stop our, our timeline of the Civil Rights Movement. But while standing on the second floor balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee, Martin Luther King Jr. was killed by a sniper, April 4th, 1968. He was staying at the hotel after leading a nonviolent demonstration in support of striking sanitation workers, and his murder set off riots in hundreds of cities across the country, certainly something that Dr. King would not have wanted. Congress later passed the Fair Housing Act in King's honor on April 11th. And basically the Fair Housing Act made it unlawful for sellers, landlords, and financial institutions to refuse to rent, sell, or provide financing based on factors other than an individual's finances. Uh, so a really big deal for, for those who are not white in this country to, to get adequate housing and to get the financing needed to do that based solely on their finances, not on the, the color of their skin. The civil rights movement after King's death, unfortunately, seemed to be shifting away from the nonviolent tactics and interracial cooperation that had brought about a number of policy changes. Right? Dr. King was walking hand in hand, hand with, with Catholic priests, with Jews, uh, Muslims, Christians, you name it. Everybody was showing up in numbers to, to be part of this. Uh, and to work for civil civil rights and for justice. But regardless of where things went after his death, nonetheless, his legacy remains. And I, I think that we can boil down his legacy to the things that are basically known about Dr. King. Right? The legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. focuses on his ideas and actions of nonviolence, civil disobedience, and peaceful non-cooperation. Uh, of course, being incredibly... Christian in his approach, really uh, trying to emulate Jesus, um, but then also emulating folks like Gandhi. And, and Dr. King had his faults. Uh, 
All right. There was some uh, some really solid evidence that he had plagiarized parts of his dissertation. Really, it was just mis, uh, not attributing where he ought to have attributed. Um, and and there was a commission on this, I think, in the early 90s, if I remember right. And they basically said there's no reason to retroactively take his doctorate away. Uh, this still contributed to academia. And so, honestly, with that one, we can move on. Now, the FBI had a lot of... Uh, a lot of dossiers about Dr. King. Um, they really had a target on him and it wasn't always a, a very good thing. Um, but they did find sort of at least strong evidence that he committed adultery, maybe even multiple times and was unfaithful to his wife. Now, again, does this mean that we should cancel him? And I'd say absolutely not. All of us fall short of the glory of God. Now, what I'm concerned about as a a national figure is his impact on the country. And what was the legacy of his ideas and his actions in the public sphere? Because everyone makes mistakes. Everybody sins, uh, even habitually. Uh, And that's not a reason to say that, well, Dr. King was was imperfect and therefore has no legacy. It's ludicrous. And people need to stop doing that with all sorts of other figures in history. Anyway, back to Dr. King. There's two lines in particular of Dr. King's fantastic I Have a Dream speech in Washington, D.C. that I think are more than noteworthy. In a portion of the speech which seems to be ad-libbed, rather than scripted, right? Dr. King is, is preaching at this point. He's not just giving a talk. He says these beautiful words. He says this. He says, I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. And this, I think, reveals the heart of the man. Right, Dr. King marched hand in hand with those of any race and religion, Here he is invoking the long past of American slavery, which still haunted the nation under the guise of Jim Crow. And where some, like Malcolm X, were threatening or even perpetrating violence, Dr. King is speaking of brotherhood and sharing a common meal. And nothing could be more Christ-like than this. Nothing could be more Christian than this. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. That is a beautiful vision and absolutely something that uh, I think we've seen happen since Dr. King's death. Of course, there's still more to do, but, but there's been a lot of progress. And second, uh, from the I Have a Dream speech, he said the beautiful words that ought to echo down the halls of humanity until we come to our final reward. He says, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Racism is a scourge from the depths of hell. To judge another person based on their skin color is absolutely reprehensible. But I would be remiss to say that this extends also to those progressives today who insist on advancing identity and race politics. Dr. King would certainly be opposed to such racist nonsense. And we we need to stop that. We need to judge people based on the content of their character, not on the color of their skin, not on their, their sexual orientation or whatever other category we want to use to lump people in together as if they all monochromatically think the same thing. 
we need to really live by these words. I'll read it again. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Amen to that. So while he was in the Birmingham jail, in solitary confinement, uh, he wrote a, uh, Dr. King wrote a letter from the Birmingham jail. A very, very famous document that will stay in the annals of American history, I'm sure. And he begins by outlining the four steps to nonviolent campaign. He says this, quote, collection of the facts to determine whether injustices are alive. Two, negotiation. Three, self-purification. And just want to make a note on that. Like, how often is that step forgotten? Self-purification? Come on, man. Nobody does that anymore. Right? Uh, anyway. And then number four direct action. So what have we got? One collection of the facts to determine where injustices are alive Two, negotiation, three self purification, and then four direct action. Now he saw the heinous reality of the treatment of blacks, especially in the South. And he answered with measured, reasonable action. And much of the rest of the letter from the Birmingham jail then builds off of these four steps and just sort of explains them. It's really, really worth reading. If you look in the show notes, I've got a link to it uh, right near the bottom. However, Dr. King challenges us even decades later in his letter, and he speaks of those who are stumbling block to justice. He mentions, of course, the Ku Klux Klan, but then he lambasts the, as he says, white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice. Oof. He goes on to say this. He says, shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. And I'm certain that the words of Dr. King ruffled feathers back then. But I'm also certain that many conservatives today would bristle at hearing this challenge. Yet what Dr. King is saying is what Jesus says to us. Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spew you from my mouth. So in other words, we have to choose a side. There can be no moderation when it comes to toleration of the sin of true racism. So I hope in at least this last little bit talking about his legacy, of course, there's more to say. There's so much more that I could go into. We could pick apart the I have a dream speech, talk about the letter of Birmingham jail, talk about his other speeches, all the different actions he's done. Uh, but in these two examples, I wanted to just pull out that, you know, today, the progressives of today need to cut it out with the race politics and the identity politics. But conservatives today also need to stop pretending that racism isn't real. I grew up in the South. I've seen racism. I know it's real. Um, so I think both of those extremes have people that are, are really not helping our country. And I think Dr. King shows us the way out. Right? This idea of collection of the facts to determine whether injustices are real. Two, negotiation. Let's talk. Third, self-purification. How, how important is that, right? To recognize our own sins, to recognize our own failings, not so that it'll stop our action, but so that we can move forward and say, Lord, I am a sinner. I need grace, but help me bring that grace to others. And then direct action, 
doing something that we can't just sit by in moderation and be on the fence when it comes to injustices. And so this brings us back to his legacy. We have to act when there is, when there is injustice, but how should we act? Should we act out with rioting and violence? Certainly Dr. King would bellow a resounding no. Instead, we're to gather the facts, negotiate, allow God to purify our own hearts, and then act directly. Well, thanks so much for joining us for Will Wright Catholic. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, little episode about Martin Luther King Jr. and his legacy and impact. Uh, I know that every time I come back to his I Have a Dream speech, I'm inspired. I love it. I think it's phenomenal. Uh, And I think it really shows us what he was trying to do. And I think what our nation was trying to do. And I think in a lot of ways we've, we've lost sight of that. And it's time to get back to this idea of letting the past be in the past. Don't forget it, recognize it, own it, but then move forward towards brotherhood in unity in Jesus Christ. It's wonderful to have you with us. Uh, again, if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and family on social media via email, texting, word of mouth. Uh, however you can get the word out, I'd greatly appreciate it. And again, thank you so much for getting us to 200 subscribers on Substack. You know, I started this podcast and uh, these articles in July of 2022, and it's now January of 2023. Uh, and I'm just amazed by by not just how many subscribers we've gotten. 200 is you know, compared to some influencers or whatever, it's pretty modest. But what amazes me is the interactions I'm having. The people that reach out to me that are saying they really enjoy these, um, or they're, they're learning something, they're inspired. I mean, praise God. That's, that's why I started this thing. I think that people aren't making enough good distinctions and good distinctions are the spice of life. Uh, and so I hope that I can bring some measure of that, uh, with God's assistance to, to you, to make your life better in some way. Um, so please feel free to reach out. If you have any ideas, comments, questions, thoughts, topics that I could look into that you want to know more about, uh, Let's have some fun with this. So it's wonderful to have you part of the Will Wright Catholic community. And uh, I hope that it continues to grow so that we can all grow in our knowledge and love and service of Almighty God. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit now and ever and forever. Amen.